Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning as we open the word, as we sing these wonderful songs that proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, And we continue our study this morning in the book of Mark. Uh, We've been in the Gospel of Mark uh, starting this year, and we're going to continue that study today. Well, when we need help, we look to a voice of authority to help us in our troubles to get us through. If you need help with home decorations or interior design, you may look to Joanna Gaines or even Martha Stewart to help. If you're looking for uh, improvement in your cooking, perhaps you would seek the help of the America's Test Kitchen or Julia Child's recipe to improve those recipes at home. Or if you're looking to improve your fitness as a gullible 20-year-old and are watching an infomercial and an ab commercial, you might just call that 1-800 toll-free number to lock in the package deal. Well, I was a young 20-year-old college student constantly looking to improve my fitness, and I had a, uh, I'd watched a movie about Bruce Lee, who was a martial arts master in the 60s, and he was exploring his fitness through these electropulse machines. In my view, he was an authority in fitness, and if Bruce Lee endorsed electropulse machines to improve his fitness, then I was going to try it too. Now, this technology isn't anything new. Those of you who had uh, maybe physical therapy in the past, uh, they even use them today to help uh, rehabilitate. But these commercial-grade machines are not cheap. But when I watched an infomercial on TV in 2001 about this ab machine that you could uh, strap to your abs and through electropulse, you can get stronger abs for only $29.99. And if you call in the next 30 minutes, you'll receive that bonus gel pack. Well, I was all in. If you've called one of these 1-800 numbers, you might know. Most of you probably have never done that uh, because you're smart. And I called them in, and I was on the phone with them for about an hour saying no to all their offers. And finally, after an hour, I bought this machine. Well, did it work? Well, it worked okay. But the, you know, wearing that strap and getting zapped to get an ab workout for about 10 minutes, I would say was equivalent to doing about 20 sit-ups. It was not what I hoped, and I would tell you it was a waste of money. Okay? But it taught me an important lesson, and that was this, that Bruce Lee may be a voice of authority in martial arts and fitness, but when it came to my fitness, he couldn't help me. Now, this example that I shared with you is a lighthearted example of seeking help from a voice of authority But there are weightier circumstances in life. And sometimes we may be desperate for help. When you're experiencing emotional pain, hopelessness, and what seems like an unending burden in life, you may have felt that nobody understands your problem and that nobody can even help you. And that in your darkest valleys of depression, maybe you have even considered taking your own life. Maybe your loved one that has been diagnosed with a terminal illness or is going through the challenges of aging and possibly even forgetting who you are as your own child. 
and maybe the weight of that burden that is too heavy for you to bear on your own. Well, in the storms of this life, you may have cried out, can anybody hear me? Can anyone help me? Is there anyone out there that understand me? For many who cannot find the voice of authority who can help them in their troubles, they often become victims of suicide. And sadly, that was the case for some of the soldiers that I had known in my platoon. As they witnessed the horrors of of, of war, as they had to take lives, and as they had to witness their friends dying, they often felt that they cannot find anyone who could truly understand what they experienced. And when they couldn't find the voice of authority who could understand their trauma, often they turned to substance abuse. And if there was no intervention, then suicide became the solution to their pain. But this morning, if you have ever struggled with these thoughts, I want to show you the one who is the voice of authority over all creation. He is the one who has gone through the greatest, the most traumatic experience that a human being could experience. And that is Jesus, who is the Lord of creation, who has authority over everything, including your life, the terminal illness of your loved ones, the sickness, the depression, and everything in this world. And this Lord of love, he calls you and I into a personal relationship of faith. So this morning, we're going to explore the question of who is this man, Jesus, through the story of Jesus calming the storm. And through this passage, we're going to see that he is the Lord of creation who calls us into an, uh, to enter into a relationship of faith. And in this story, we're going to see a series of three rebukes. We're going to see the disciples rebuking Jesus, then Jesus rebuking the storm, followed by Jesus rebuking his disciples. Now, if you're following in your outline, uh, there, is a, uh, there is a grammatical mistake there that I made uh, that I didn't catch before I was sending it in. If you look at points two and three, it'll have an apostrophe after uh, Jesus, a possessive apostrophe, and you can just get rid of that. And the result of these rebukes uh, are going to give us an insight into the disciples' realization of Jesus' authority. So if you're not already there, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. This event is found in Mark on the same day when Jesus was teaching on the parables. We're told in chapter 4 verse 1 that Jesus taught the parables by the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee by Capernaum. It is a large lake. So Mark chapter 4, 1 says this, Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Notice Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And in the sea, and there are people on the shore, which in certain pockets along the shore provided a natural acoustic so you can talk in a normal tone, and people are able to hear him very clearly. And the boat that they're in is a fishing boat. In 1986, a fishing boat dating to the time of Jesus' ministry was discovered. Uh, it was discovered on the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's the boat that you see on the picture there. And the boat was about 
uh, about nine yards. It was about 27 feet long, eight feet wide, and about five feet high. And it was propelled by four rowers and had a capacity to hold about 15 people max. You can see the picture that this was the kind of boat that Jesus was in. And you can see that there's room in there for, you know, fish. They can ride together. Now, it's no speedboat or anything like that. Uh, but certainly, people can sit in it and sit around it. You can go ahead and take the picture down. So Jesus finished his teaching through parables, and now he's ready to move on. So let's go ahead and see. You can take that one down. I'll come back to that, the map one. Okay. So let's see what happens next. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Okay, join me in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall. I want you to highlight, circle, or underline that word. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So here we have a giant storm. Okay, the, the translator in NIV says a squall. The word used here to describe it is the word mega, okay, as in a mega million lottery. And we're going to come back to this word mega because this word will give us an insight into one of the key themes of this passage. It is a big storm. Now, I know many of you grew up in farms and you're able to tell the weather just by looking at cloud patterns and barometric pressure. And, you know, I'm not a meteorologist and I'm just looking for ways to water my lawn uh, as cheap as possible. And when I learned that it costs hundreds of dollars just to keep up the lawn, I've been praying that the Lord would just send the rain, that he would do the work of watering. Okay? But what I notice about it is this. You can tell the weather very well, but I can't even tell when it's going to rain using my weather app. Okay? The, the Wichita weather here seems to be so fickle and so unpredictable that when it says it's going to rain, it doesn't. And when it says it's not going to rain, it actually does. And that kind of unpredictability, unpredictability is similar in the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to show that picture. If you look at that picture, you're going to see the Sea of Galilee there. And it is about 700 feet below the sea level. You can see the Mediterranean Sea at the sea level. And then right next, around, if you look at the geography around the, the Sea of Galilee, you're going to see those hills, okay? Those are high hills. And when you go to the mountains, what's the weather like? It's usually cooler, right? So when you have this cool weather and the sea breeze coming in, going into bringing this cool weather into the, uh, the depths where it's a warmer weather, you always, you're going to have this current of cooler air mixing with the warm air, causing a storm. So this is a very common pattern that they're used to. You can go ahead and take the picture down. And here we have a storm, and Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Okay, now, how can he possibly sleep through something like this? If he's sleeping while he's getting soaked wet, you know that he is exhausted. Okay, water and rain usually wakes people up, and you even get buckets of water to wake people up. But here, Jesus seems to be sound asleep. So how can he sleep through the storm? Well, restful sleep in dangerous situation was an indication of trust in God in the Old Testament. Psalm 3.5 says that I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. 
In Psalm 4.8, we also read, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, he is sleeping because he trusts the Heavenly Father to sustain him. But equally important here is the significance of Jesus' humanity. The very passage that Eric read earlier talks about Jesus taking on the human nature and that he is a fully human person. Have you ever wondered if Jesus played football, would he have been a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes? Have you ever wondered that? Well, it's an interesting question to ponder, isn't it? We often think that because Jesus was the living God during his earthly ministry, that he would have had no limits to his human abilities. But this passage tells us otherwise. See, Jesus got hungry. He got tired. And here we see that he is exhausted and he's sleeping through a storm. See, there were limits and weakness to his human nature. He couldn't just throw a football clear across across the Sea of Galilee, nor could he have thrown a 200-mile-an-hour fastball, at least not without practice. The early church fought against many heresies that claimed that Jesus was either more God or more human than divine. And in 451, the term uh, hypostatic union was officially used in what we call the Chalcedonian Creed. And it describes Jesus' divine and his human nature in perfect union. Okay, in this definition, we read the following. <clears throat> the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood. Listen to this. Truly God and truly man. See, Jesus was and is human like you and me. He experienced pain. He experienced hunger. He experienced fatigue. And here we see that he has reached his limits of his human nature. So he needs a nap. But like most puppies and children, his disciples are not going to let him sleep. So join me in verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, which is the back, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And here we see our first point in our outline, which is also the first rebuke in the series of rebukes. And that is the disciples rebuked Jesus. The disciples rebuked Jesus. And the reason for the rebuke is because a storm is threatening their life. And you may have wondered, well, was it really threatening their life? Many of you go out on boats and you've been out in the storm and you think, okay, well, it's a storm, but was it really threatening their life? Well, see, we have to remember that this was a culture where swimming wasn't a recreational activity. It was not. And sinking in stormy seas in the middle of a lake like this would have killed them. Notice their words. This is a rebuke against the God of the universe. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And you have to remember in their society where authority was valued and respected, it was unspeakable for those under authority to rebuke those who are in authority. A slave would never rebuke his master. A child would never rebuke his parents. 
And, and the student would never rebuke his teacher, as we see here. When April and I uh, moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, okay, we got involved in the Hershey Free Church, and our daughter, uh, oldest daughter, Annabelle, had just turned one. And we had met this uh, sweet gal who said, hey, I can babysit, and I'll babysit for you guys if you guys want to go on a date. We said, you know, she's old enough now that I think that she can finally be with the sitter, so let's try it out. And when she came, we gave her final instructions and said, yep, this is what you have to do, and put her to bed at this time. And as we were getting ready to leave the door, Annabelle had gotten up and she rebuked us. And she said, you're not going anywhere. And we said, we were taken aback and we were shocked. We said, and we had to go back and to correct her. And we said, hey, listen, one-year-olds don't rebuke their parents. You're going to be fine. You're the baby. We're the parents. You're going to be just fine with this babysitter. And as, as ironic as our situation was with our one-year-old rebuking us, it was actually more ironic in that culture for the disciples to rebuke their teacher. Granted, they were in panic mode. What this lack of respect for their teacher's authority shows is actually a failure on their part. Not only were they dishonoring their master, but they did not understand the true identity of the Son of God. So what was Jesus' response? Well, let's see that in verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. I want you to circle that word or underline that word. And here's our second rebuke in the series, which is also our second point in our outline, that Jesus rebukes the storm. Jesus rebukes the storm. Well, who can possibly rebuke the creation to obey his commands? Only the creator who spoke the creation into existence by his word, who commanded, let there be light. Jesus is the Lord of creation who commanded the wind and the waves to be quiet and still, and they obey him because he is the creator. Colossians 1.15 tells us, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When the creator speaks, the creation obeys. The result here is complete peace. The NIV translates this as completely calm. And the words Mark used here are literally mega calm. Things became mega calm. The same Greek word mega is used here to describe that result. See, the contrast between the mega storm and the mega calm highlights Jesus' authority as the one who is truly in charge over all creation. What is interesting about this story is that there is a very similar story found in the Old Testament. Can you think of that story? You remember the story of Jonah? where he is sound asleep in a boat while the crew is panicking in the middle of a storm, and the storm is miraculously calmed through his order to throw him off the boat. Yes, 
This story of Jesus in the boat calls to mind the very story of Jonah. But there are major differences between these two stories. See, in Jonah's story, he was disobedient and running from God, whereas Jesus is perfectly obedient to the Father's plan. Jonah's storm was calmed by God when he conformed to God's plan, but Jesus' storm conformed to Jesus' commands because he is the Lord of creation. And Jonah was inside the darkness of a giant fish for three days. Likewise, Jesus was also in the darkness of death for three days. But he did not stay in the grave, but rose again, rose again to justify sinners through faith. So who is this man who can give orders to the creation and it obeys? Listen to God's response to Job in Job 38. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? The one who commanded the wind and the waves to obey is none other than the creator himself. Indeed, someone greater than Jonah is here. But he is not a God who is just powerful and impersonal like the, God of the, uh, the gods of the ancient world. Rather, he calls us into a, a personal relationship of faith. We see this in our rebuke, in our final rebuke in verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. I want you to underline that word. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here we see our final rebuke in the series, which is also our final point. Jesus rebukes the disciples. Notice in his rebuke that it's a call to faith. He says, do you have no faith? Do you still have no faith? In other words, do you still not trust me? Do you not trust who I am? Jesus' rebuke is not just a call to simply believe intellectually that he is God, but his call is a personal invitation to trust in him even through the storms of this life. The disciples' response is fear. It is the fear of the most terrifying degree. And it's difficult to capture in words the degree of fear that Mark was trying to convey here. The original language literally says, they feared with mega fear. In English, we might say, they were really, really, really terrified. But why would Mark write it this way? Remember the word mega was used here to describe the storm and the calm to emphasize Jesus' power and authority. Well, here the word mega describes their response of fear to emphasize their inability to understand the true nature of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is human and he ate, slept, and went to the bathroom just like the disciples did. But we must never forget that he is also the image of the perfect God. 
He is the holy king who commands the respect and reverence of his creation. When he walks through his creation, the holy angels bow before him, and we, his creatures, wouldn't just walk up to him as a buddy to give him a pounded or a high five, but we would also bow before the angels and with the angels and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The disciples had witnessed his divine miracles, but also got too complacent in their understanding of his humanity. But we must always remember that though Jesus is human like us, he is also divine. He is the divine creator and the Lord of the universe. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So how shall we apply these truths to our lives? Mark has highlighted for us two very important truths here. Through the use of the word mega, he intended to emphasize the following. First, the authority of Jesus as the Lord of creation and second, the disciples' inability to fathom the true nature of Christ. See, we as sinners, though we may know Christ, we're not too different than the disciples in that boat. The very human in the boat with them was a creator who was able to save them. And he is the loving God who calls us and says, trust me. How often do we rebuke Jesus in our times of trouble and suffering as we say, why me, God? Why are you doing this to me? Or how could you let this happen? The storms of this life can be terrifying and can cause us to question the goodness of God. Whether it's the trauma of war, the news about a loved one, one who has been diagnosed with cancer, this life is full of suffering. And like the disciples, we often forget who it is that is riding in the boat with us. But he who is with us knows intimately the pain and the depths of your struggles in your storm. He understands your pain, and you can be assured that he has power over your trauma. He reigns over all creation, including your suffering, your disease, and even your death. And this loving God is in the boat with you, and he calls you in the midst of your storm, and he says, trust me, my plan is perfect. My provision for you and my timing is perfect. You may fear the future, but know that I am with you to the end. So who is this man? He is the Jesus, the Lord of creation, who spoke and created with the words, let there be light. He is the master who commands the wind and the waves to hush, and they obey him. He is God who has revealed himself to sinners as the great I am, so that the world may know that the eternal God of love stepped down from his throne to save sinners like us. He is the wondrous mystery that we sang about the light of life who condescended and took on flesh to ransom sinners. 
And he is the Christ who went on to the cross in our stead to reconcile sinners to God so that we may turn to him in repentance and be saved from the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus is the final authority in the storms of your life. He is the Lord of creation who calls you and me into a personal relationship of faith. And this morning, if he's not the highest authority of your life, then I urge you to look to him and see who it is that is calling you and saying, do you still not trust me? Maybe you have searched high and low and across the world to find meaning and healing for your suffering. Or maybe you fear that big transition that's coming up in your future. But only under the authority of his loving and gentle care will you find true peace and healing for your soul. His ways are true. And the path of holiness that he has charted for you is a path of the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction for your life. So turn to him and submit to his loving authority today. And church, may we never forget his authority and his identity as the Lord of the creation. And when the storms of this life cause us to stumble, may we never forget that he is with us to the end of the age. I close with the words of this John Newton's hymn. And it's a hymn called, I Will Trust and Not Be Afraid. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey. Tis his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken will surely prevail. May that be our anthem when the storms of life come our way. <laughs>